Welcome from Third Flatiron Publishing in Boulder, Colorado and Ayer, Scotland. The sun has crossed the celestial equator, bringing with it summer's end. For this story podcast, we're featuring a growing genre called cli-fi, in which ecology and climate change play key roles. Grid Drop by William Huggins imagines a future called The Following, where humans decide that we've done enough damage to the biosphere and leave the planet to heal for 500 years. But it turns out that the following is not so simple as that. Huggins was born in the remote canyons of eastern Utah in a little town called Moab and is currently a resident of Nevada. He takes his writing inspiration from the outdoors and contributes to several environmental blogs. Bill's written two more stories about the following and hopes to turn these into a novel. This compelling and moving story first appeared in the Third Flatiron anthology, Hyperpowers. For more from Third Flatiron, please check out our website at thirdflatiron.com and subscribe to our feed. And now, here's Grid Drop, read by Keeley Rue. Grid Drop by William Huggins Hardfall woke her. Celeste blinked, checked Chrono. The shuttle shook hard through the lower reaches of the mesosphere, two hundred and sinking fast. She nodded, took a long drag from her waterline. Mikio, Min, and Pieter woke and sipped as well, then partnered to check seals on their suits from toes to neck. Mikio took an extra second to tuck Celeste's long, dark hair into the neckline, nimble fingers whose touch Celeste knew well. Each fired suit diagnostics as they wrapped and sealed helmets. They stood as one, paired again, and fastened rifles tightly against lower backs, snug below the light chute bags. The shuttle shook once more, hard, then plunged forward in a smooth and deep fall. Celeste's faceplate flashed green twice. DT-84 outbound. She fired the link and a triple matrix flashed on faceplates, tracking for all of them. A door slipped open to her left, and she stepped toward it. Lock, the tinny voice came from the cockpit. Without responding, Celeste stepped out, angled herself in a steep dive, fellow commandos falling close behind her. Arms to her side, she tracked progress across the faceplate, angling against the winds to nudge slight course corrections as needed. Kilometers ticked off in the upper left corner. She watched the team adjust behind her as she shifted perfect tandem, though it had been months since they'd made a drop. Freedom, ah, the pure freedom of falling. Drops so rare these days, she thought. So few grids left. Fifteen minutes until dawn. The deep darkness below her loomed like a bottomless pit, as if they fell through pure space and not toward the dark gravity well of the world below. Hard to believe two centuries earlier most of the mass would have been lit up like a control board, Networks of electric light spanning entire continents. No more. Two hundred years of following had pulled all evidence of historic human activities from the surface, removing everything non-organic the Dirty Ones created, from the smallest article to the largest city. The work of generations, leaving the planet to heal. Mostly, Celeste thought. Some resisted the authorities' vision and took to the wilds to live. Most of those were left to their own devices, so long as they did not violate authority standards. Indigenous peoples who returned to traditional lifeways were given a wide berth. It was not they who had taken the planet to the brink of ecological catastrophe. But any who kept up some of the poor practices of the dirty ones were visited by a scattering of teams, 
one of which Celeste and her crew comprised. They fell toward one such place now. Fools. She steeled herself. She let the cold air and chill wind wrap around her, cool the heart she'd need for the action. It was all too easy to take in the human component, to let compassion for a small group slip in, and the larger following had to be considered. The healing that took root below her, that swept away the malignancy of five centuries of abuse, took precedence over other concerns. She found it hard to see how anyone could fail to see that simple fact. The contract with all life, the dirty ones abrogated, the following repaired. They fell, invisible, numbers descending swiftly. She kept her attention on the boards, tracking distance, fall rate, the spread of the team. But part of her attention she let drift right, knowing what was coming. The best part of this, or any drop, if you timed them properly. She tracked the minutes, made the calculations in her head, with no need for the complex algorithms that spilled across her faceplate, until the event began to unfold. You could watch it from the rise against, in orbit far above, but here, in the air over the world, ah, this was the place to truly see it happen. Magic, she thought. Not that she believed in those ancient stories, any more than the other myths of that old world, but no other word fit her experience. While that dark world spun, pulling them down and along with it, suddenly a crimson explosion sprang over the horizon, spilling across the darkness like warmth. The world turned showy suddenly, as if a curtain fled, chased by a light determined to expose everything. The sight never failed to fill her with awe. As if from nowhere, the world filled slowly with forests, patches of open water, hills, mountains, valleys, and large empty swaths of grassland and prairie. All empty, open, wild, no longer marred by humankind. Mostly, she thought again. She drifted through a small layer of cloud, made a slight course correction. The team moved with her. She watched the morning unfold below, falling toward a deep patch of forest with an open glade. Closer, she could see buildings now, with glimmers of light flashing along their rooftops. Now. She tapped a key on her chest and felt the familiar snap as the chute opened. She caught a crossing thermal and guided herself expertly down, over the village still quiet and sleeping. No movement anywhere in the spaces between dwellings. She counted twenty-five structures as she crossed and landed softly in a small open area to the north. She squatted and waited until the other three joined her on the ground, then unbelted the chute. They wrapped and stowed them quickly and quietly, set them together in a pile. Each freed their rifle, softly opening their three sections and testing power. She looked up. Radios would stay on for emergencies. All other communication would be hand signs now, and she watched the three flash. Check. They moved towards the buildings in silence, above them a sky blue with light clouds scattered high above. Waking birdsong carried in the morning stillness. The tread across uneven ground always surprised Celeste at first. She smiled slightly in wonder, enjoying the odd feeling of uneven surfaces underfoot, the strange look and sensation of morning dew, spitting reflections back at the new sun. Boots slid some, but all were experienced and quickly adapted. As they reached the village's edge, she flashed a hand signal to Peter, and he moved away to the right. They stepped between two squat buildings, wooden edges fraying. Poorly insulated wires hung low between the buildings. 
winding their way through the village with varying states of tautness. The building seemed loosely organized around a central core. She flashed a signal, and Mir stepped quietly to the left, silent even over the smooth rocks that coated the ground now. Celeste lowered her carbine and checked the charge again, full. She'd never had to use it, but training never let her forget regs. She saw Mikyu do the same to her right, nodded. Two greens on the faceplate represented Min and Pieter. All well. Celeste and Mikio stepped forward into the central square. The small space opened into what was mostly a circle, with benches, tables, a water trough, and a bell arranged in the center. A tall pole held a light that was off now, a battery at the base, fed by an exposed line. Dangerous. She followed the line to the closest building and saw the gleam of the solar panel reflecting the sun, the last bit of dew burning off its base. Most of the homes had panels on them, angled as much as they could in the southern faces, catching the most sun over the course of the year in this latitude. The battery at the base of the pole was far too small to charge the village at night. This light, Celeste thought. Communal meeting area. She was touched at the thought, the village and its denizens outside under the stars, telling stories or singing songs or practicing whatever religion they still might have. Perhaps a tinge of jealousy, envy, that they had this time, even if illegal, to stay in touch with the world, know it, in a way she never would. Battery, Mikio said softly, breaking into her thoughts. Celeste made a cutting motion with her hand. Mikio nodded and fired her carbine at its lightest setting, searing the dark box at the pole's base and kicking it away. She lifted the rifle and fired at the small bulb, shattering it. Hard to imagine they would have another. Celeste cocked her head. Mikio shrugged, probably smiling behind the dark faceplate. Celeste knew her partner, yes. Suited and not. Min appeared with a purposeful, satisfied air, rifle at the ready, scanning the huts as she walked. Nothing. No movement. Celeste found that slightly odd. The team worked silently, yes, skilled as any. But with the morning now past its inception, someone should have been about. She had heard not even movement within the buildings. She raised a hand. Hold. The three women spun and faced outward, waiting for signs of life. The stillness continued, windless. Light sounds from the forest pressed against the clearing. The wildness this last pocket of civilization held at bay, which would be consumed when their work was done. Pieter still green, still moving. She wondered where he was, why Min had made her circuit so quickly. Movement to her left, and she turned gracefully, carbine raised, catching a gray-haired woman whose wrinkled face twisted in shock. Elder, Celeste thought instantly. She lifted the rifle, and the woman's hands rose into the air. She pointed to the nearest bench, and the woman made her way there slowly, taking her time to sit, evident pain moving across her body in the action. She held an earthenware mug in one hand. Celeste held a finger to her faceplate for silence. Mikio, water, she said quietly. She and Min covered the homes as Mikio took the mug, filled it from the trough, and took it back to the old woman, who took a deep drink. We never thought you would come, she said, and sipped again. Celeste shook her head and raised a finger to her faceplate again. The woman looked down and contemplated the mug. Mikio retook her position and they waited, signs of life gradually appearing. They guided the villagers to the water, shadowing them with their weapons as they filled mugs and took seats on the benches, 
the day warmed. No fires, though Celeste was sure there had to be wood stopped somewhere. Even with solar assistance for heat, winters were rugged here. Perhaps Pieter found this place and was documenting it. His light still burned bright green. Where was he? She didn't want to risk a communication if he was in hiding. But if he was, why hadn't he coded to red? After several minutes went by without anyone else appearing, Celeste stepped forward. She counted thirty-seven people, twelve of them children, most of whom looked filthy and emaciated, as did everyone else. Not a thriving community, this. All dressed in rags or hides, animal skins and the like, patched and sewed over many times. Bare feet now, though doubtless foot coverings hid inside the hovels somewhere, held back for use in the colder months. In spite of herself, she couldn't help but be impressed. They had held on these many generations, making what lives they could. She lowered her carbine. You are the elder? The older woman nodded, looked to her right, at a man of indeterminate age, hairless, deep lines in his face. And him. He looked up, sunken eyes, alight with fear, perhaps anger. Celeste had seen her share of both. Evil, he hissed. Celeste addressed the group. You may have heard tales of us. No few nodded. We respect your elders, villagers. They will give you their counsel. Let me give you ours. We come as representatives of the following, to offer you lives of service to a greater good, to undo what our ancestors did to the world, to bring you health and prosperity. The old man raised himself on shaky legs. You come only with evil. Blasphemy! The woman reached for him. Harold! He pushed her away. They come, my friends, my family, to take our lives. He stepped forward and pointed at the pole. Already our light is gone. They will take more. Everything. Our village. Our homes. Burn them. This. This is our land. Our world. And you would take us from it and give it back to things that do not even reason. Celeste nodded. Yes, your village will no longer exist. We will take what can be recycled and burn the rest. It has no place here. You have no place here. No longer. You may stay, if that is your choice. Or you may come with us, when the scavenger appears. And we'll give you new lives in service to the following. In service to evil? He shook a fist. I will not go with you, ever. If I were but younger. If I had a weapon. You would die, futilely, Celeste snapped, suddenly out of patience with the old man. She turned to the woman. Is this the entire village? The woman shook her head. Two in the sick house, and another, somewhere. Celeste thought suddenly of Peter, but he was still green, and too good to be trapped by a villager. She hoped. She clicked to long mode. DT-84, sending coordinates. Possibly forty live, all ages. Too ill. Not thirty structures. The response was quick. SCA-5444, pre-notified. On refinery, wipe east. Reassigning. Twenty minutes, DT-84. Aye. She closed the line, turned again to the villagers. Speak among yourselves. Take what counsel you will. We can take you all, if all are willing. She looked at the elders. The man sat with his face in his hands. The woman stared at her listlessly. Think of the children and the ill, as well as yourselves. 
The villagers moved to make a circle around their elders. Then Mikio cried out and fell to her knees, grabbing her chest, carbine falling to the ground. The villagers screamed and tightened in a mass. The old woman stood on the bench, shouting. Men spun, looking for what had hit Mikio. Celeste fought every instinct to leap to Mikio, kept her head up and swung her carbine back and forth, searching the houses. Mikio? Fine, she said, gasping for breath. Maybe a rib. She picked up her carbine with one hand and ran the other over her suit. No puncture. She reached down and lifted a shaft from the ground, sharp-edged on the front, fletched with feathers on the back. Celeste shook her head. Harrows! Fools! Go, Mikio hissed, raising herself to her feet and holding her rifle in both hands. Find him, or he hurts someone else. Min? Min held her carbine up, facing into a row of houses behind the trough. In there. Cover me, Celeste said. She went to move forward, then stopped. In the shadows of a house, a huge boy stepped, arms behind his head. Peter appeared behind him, carbine at his back, a huge crossbow slung over his shoulder. He pushed the boy to the center, made him sit at the pole. Then he set down his carbine while Celeste covered him. He swiftly broke the old weapon into pieces. Have mercy, the old man said, finally looking up. We need that. Peter fiercely threw the wooden base away and reclaimed his carbine. I'm very clear what you need it for, old one. Celeste had never heard quiet anger burning behind his words before. It worried her. Peter, if you will, he said. Celeste turned to Min, gave a quick sign. Cover. She stepped past the boy with his lowered head and followed Peter. They moved quickly between several homes, turning twice, until they came to a smaller building with a slanted roof and steel smokestack, made entirely of wood. At its side clung an ancient battery the size of the boy Peter walked out lifeblood of the village. The door hung slightly ajar on poor hinges. Peter stopped. Cover? He shook his head. It's clear. I've seen. Once is enough. She opened the door and let the light of morning fill the space, then leapt back and dropped it as suddenly. Her heart pounded and her vision went dark for a moment, even from that brief sight, like something from the old vids. The stench. The matted hanging forms, bloody hooks and blades and bench. In a decade of drops, she'd never seen anything like it. But it made sense, she thought. She let the anger wash away and cooled herself. It made sense. No gardens, no sign of agriculture, but this. Burn it, she said. I. She heard the carbine activate and the smell of smoke as she walked away. She half ran back to the circle, found all to be as she left it. One of the villagers asked to give the boy some water, and she approved. She had knelt next to Mikio, who sat now, carbine across her lap. Celeste touched her shoulder, and Mikio nodded, closed her hand over hers for a moment, then gripped her weapon again. Five minutes, Celeste said, maybe less. Will you come with us? The old man rose. Some will. Some will not. I will not. He waved a hand at the smoke rising over the village. Though you have killed us now, taking our food. You had no right to take those lives. So you say, you who worship these things, as if they were people. But we are your people. We are people. Do you not see that? He waved his arms. Do you not see us for what we are? Yes, Celeste said. 
and for what you could be. Choose as you will. Peter returned, and they led the villagers into the clearing to the north. The wind blew their way, and the smell of burning flesh choked them for a moment, until it shifted. As it did, the scavenger appeared, flying low across the treetops. It settled on the far side of the clearing. A door opened, and two crews spilled forth in small wheeled vehicles. They raced into the village. The old man moved as if to stop them, but the woman held him, and he rested his head on her shoulder. They moved slowly away from the group. A young girl came and touched Celeste's leg, feeling the strength of the fabric that covered her. She looked up, bright green eyes through black tangled hair. She smiled. I will come. Food. Please, food. Celeste touched her head. We have more than enough for you. Another girl approached. I will be like you. Do what you do. Let's hope you'll never have to. Others came and gathered around. She had Min and Mikio lead them to the scavenger, Mikio limping and obviously in pain. Pieter waited until a small vehicle passed with the two ill villagers, then took the last, leaving Celeste to wait. The crews cleaned the village in less than an hour, too good at their work by far, scouring the panels and wires, the fallen central battery and the burned one on the village's eastern edge. Truly, there was little that was useful anymore. Then they set fires as they drove back to the scavenger, and the village began to burn. Celeste moved up to the six remaining figures, all old but for the boy. She never knew what to say to them, those who would not come. Their community was fading, that they were starving, that they were doomed. They knew all that already. At least they had the children. The children always came. She slung the carbine over her shoulder. One last chance. She appealed to the young man with an open hand. For you. For all of them. You have no future here. But he simply looked down and did not answer. She walked away, holding her carbine as she went. She no longer needed it. She crossed the grass quickly. The door slid shut behind her as she boarded, and she heard the engines rise. She did not want to go see those who had come with him yet. Could not. She knew Mikio would be in the care of a medical crew now beginning the healing journey. She waited for the scavenger to lift. Per her ritual, she could not move until then. She looked at the small group gathered on the grass below, forced herself to watch, to remind herself of the mixed truths in what she did. Six more added. As always, she could see them, the faces that lined up over the years with the same look as they lifted away. Though they never saw hers, like her parents when they sent her away. Those faces would never leave her. Thanks for listening to this podcast from thirdflatiron.com. Original music by Disco Volante. Sound production was by Andrew Cairns. 